Well, Matthew chapter 2, so we are, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Matthew's gospel. We're going we're gonna to get, Lord willing, in, in this week and in, in the coming months, we're going to just be, be plodding through Matthew's gospel. And so we're going to be continuing Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And what we see in these verses is really a geographical journey, uh, the journey of the king. And so we're, we're going to go from, from Bethlehem to Egypt, from Egypt to uh, back to Nazareth, um, and so, so there's this ge- geographical journey that Jesus being carried, at this point he's still a toddler, and he's, he's in the care of his, of his father and his mother, and, and he's traveling to these different locations. And what we see as we, as we come to a conclusion of, of, of Matthew chapter 2 is that Matthew is continuing to, to beat the drum that Jesus is the true king. And so we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, there's two kings on the scene. There's, there's Herod and there's Jesus, the, the child-born king, and there's tension. And, and that tension is going to be going to be further carried out in the end of chapter 2. But what Matthew wants us to know is that while there's two kings on the scene in chapter 2 up until this point, by the time we reach the end of chapter 2, there's only going to be one king. There's only going to be one king, and that's the true king, and that's Jesus. He's the only king that's going to still be alive at the end of chapter 2. Herod is going to come and go. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is, in fact, the true king. But he's also, to do that, he, he's going to use this phrase or, or, or this, this uh, interpretive um, process of, of fulfillment. And so we, we've seen this already in chapter 1, but, but in chapter 2, our passages, uh, our verses 13 through 23, there's going to be three different sections of verses, and the end of each verse is this happened to fulfill, or this was in order that this might be fulfilled. And so this fulfillment language is what's the main idea here in these passages. And Matthew uses these fulfillment uh, quotes to show that Jesus is, in fact, the true king. And, and we're going to get an idea from Matthew of how we're supposed to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus, because that's what he, he's doing. He's seeing Jesus, and he's saying, what, what is happening here in the life of Jesus is connected to what came before. And so to understand Jesus, you've got to know what came before. And to understand what came before, you have to understand Jesus. And so that's what Matthew's going to do uh, here in these, these verses. So let's, we're, we're going to see the journey of the true king here in these verses. So if you're, you're there, you can read along. Uh, follow along as I read. So Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13, and I'll read through uh, the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he, had been, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the outline. Father, I ask that as we read and study and think about these verses, this this journey that, that Jesus takes in his young life, that we would be encouraged. I pray that our hearts would would behold the wonders of our king who was given that he might save his people from their sins. And so I pray that our hearts might, might, might be excited to worship the Christ. I pray that our obedience to him as Lord would, would be promoted as a result of us being here today. And I pray for those who don't pledge their allegiance, who haven't put their faith in Jesus, might behold him as the king who's worthy of their all. I pray you do all these things uh, in these following moments. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, again, there's, there's three sections that we're gonna work through, um, that, that, that just the, the sections that, that are divided out. So we're gonna see the journey to Egypt there, verses 13 through 15. And then second, we're gonna see the massacre in Bethlehem, verses 16 through 18. Then finally, the, the third point of our outline is the return to Nazareth, which is the last section, verses 19 through 23. Okay, so we have the journey to Egypt, the massacre in Bethlehem, and the return to Nazareth. So we're going to work through those. Let's start there, the journey to Egypt, verses 13 through 15. And so verse 13 picks up and says, when they had departed. So, so this picks up the story that started at the beginning of chapter 2 and the, the Magi. that They went to Herod first to ask Herod where the king was. Herod had no idea, but, but Herod was told, well, this is, he's, he's in Bethlehem. And so the Magi are sinning. And, and we know Herod in earlier in chapter 2 says, when, after you see the king, come back to me because I want to go worship him. And so he sent the Magi away. So the Magi go and they, they behold just as they were told and they worship and they give Joseph and Mary, they, they give these gifts and they worship the newborn king. But then in verse 12 of chapter two, they were warned in a dream. So the Lord warns the Magi, don't go back to Herod. You told him you would, but don't do that. And, and now we see in these verses why they don't go back to Herod, but they depart their time with Jesus and Mary and Joseph. This was probably the, the, a one-night thing. They might not have even stayed the night. In fact, from, from Jerusalem, from where they were, to Bethlehem, it was only a few-mile journey. And so they, they see Jesus, they spend time worshiping, they, they give the gifts, and they leave. And as soon as they're gone, behold, verse 13, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And so here Joseph is a, another angelic vision. He's no stranger to these. He is again visited by an angel, but this time the angel says, rise, take the child, and the focus is on the child, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt. Get out of here, flee, run, because Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And so, so the angel warns Joseph, Herod is coming to kill the child, you need to go. And so we see the Lord intervening in the events of the early life of Jesus, Nothing is left to chance. The Lord intervenes and sends an angel to Joseph. And Joseph, upon hearing, we shouldn't miss this, Joseph obeys again. He is a a pattern again and again. He receives commands or or imperatives and is told to do something by an angel. And he he obeys. And so the the angel visits Joseph. We assume he comes at night and Joseph gets the message. In verse 14, he took the child and his mother by night. So I think that's why he left at night. He got the message at night and said, okay, we're going to go. 
And so Joseph obeys right away. No time to waste. He doesn't know when Herod's coming, but he knows Herod is coming for the child. And, and so he obeys this call. And I mean, I, I just couldn't help but think about Joseph here, who, who even before the birth, there, there's these angelic visits to him and to Mary. And, and then there's the, the journey to Bethlehem and the census and, and, and the, the, the birth in the inn and, and the star and all that. And, and so he's just coming off the, the wise men come and the wise men give him these, these gifts to his, to his newborn son. And all along the way, Joseph's been confirmed. This is the chosen one. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. So Joseph is like, Here's, I, I'm the father of the king. And I'm sure he's humbled and he can't believe it. But now he's being told, the king of kings, the promised one, his life's in danger. So you better take him and run away from this guy named Herod, who's also a king. So, so think about the irony there. I mean, why, if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, let, the, let Herod come. I got the king of kings on my team. Yet that's not what happens. He says, okay, we're, we're going to go. The Lord has made it clear to us. And so we go. And so they go on a, about a 150-mile journey from Bethlehem into Egypt. Egypt would have been a, a, a normal place for Jews to, to flee, for, for Jewish refugees to go when there's trouble in the homeland. So, so there would have been a community of, uh, of, of Jews that had been scattered in Egypt and so this is why, one of the reasons they go to Egypt, but the other reason, I think the main reason Matthew wants us to see, is that they go to Egypt, look at the end of verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And so Matthew looks at these events and says, okay, all of this has happened in order so to get Jesus, the promised one, into, the, into Egypt to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so you see how he sees this as fulfillment language. He says, so Jesus goes to Egypt so that when he comes out later at the end of this chapter, when they come back out of Egypt, that's a fulfillment of a promise that was made. Now, now this is where we get the example of Matthew's understanding of the Old Testament. We want to ask the question because if you're like me, if you look back at that quote, out of Egypt I called my son, if you, if you have a Bible with footnotes, it, it tells you it's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And so, so that is what Hosea 11, 1 says, out of Egypt I called my son. But when we look at Hosea 11.1, 1, there is no messianic promise there. He's not talking about the promised Messiah. And so we say, well, what do you mean, Matthew, that, that he's called out of Egypt to fulfill what was written? You see, we have to understand what Matthew does in terms of fulfillment is it's much broader than what, what we tend to think. So what I think, what I tend to think when I think about fulfillment language, if you look at, at the end of chapter 1, so Matthew chapter 1, at the very end, so verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So I hear that prophecy and I hear the virgin Mary getting, getting pregnant and giving birth to the son. I say, well, that, that's, a, that's a promise and fulfillment. Easy, right? That, that's a pretty easy one-to-one. So there's a promise that the Messiah is gonna be born to a virgin. The virgin gives birth. So, so that's easy in my mind of, of fulfillment. But, but here, that's not what we have. Because Hosea 11 isn't about a promised Messiah coming out of Egypt. And so what Matthew does here, this, this verb fulfill has a much broader meaning than, than what we might think on the surface. And so what Matthew's doing here is he's using typology to, to show that the coming of the Messiah fulfills all that came before. So, so think about it this way, that throughout the entire Old Testament, there's, there's threads, there's strands, there's themes, patterns, types that, that are all moving forward together so that when Jesus comes, all of them are fulfilled. They all reach their purpose. They all reach their end in the person work of Jesus. 
And so, so one, one author defines type as a real person, place, or object, or event that God ordains to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus and his person and work. And so we see this all over the Old Testament. And so, so think about Adam. Adam is a, a type. Paul would pick that up in, in the book of Romans. Or Moses is a type. Or King David is a type. Or the temple Think about God's dwelling place. He dwells in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. Well, when Jesus comes, he says, I, the, the, the word dwelt among us. And that's God's presence. So, so it's a, a type pointing through to Jesus who would come. Or think about the Old Testament sacrifices. The book of Hebrews understands. They're all types and shadows. So when Jesus comes, it fulfills what came before. And, and it, there's no need for the type when the reality comes. Think about the sacrificial lamb. John the Baptist would say that. Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, here's the true Lamb. And what, what, what Matthew's doing here is to say that Israel is a type of Jesus. That Israel is a type, which means as we read the Old Testament, we, read, we encounter God creating this people and calling out this people and sustaining this people and giving them kings and prophets and, and his word, but he's doing so so that Israel will lead to the coming of Jesus. It was never ultimately about Israel. It, it was about Israel only so far as Israel pointed to and led to the coming of Christ. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is on the scene and Jesus is the true Israel, the faithful son. Because when you look at Hosea chapter 11, the Old Testament passage that Matthew quotes here, that is about Israel being delivered from Egypt. And when was Israel delivered from Egypt? By Moses in the Exodus, right? So, so, so this is the Lord's covenant love shown to Israel that delivers them. But what happened to Israel with their relationship with the Lord? What, what, did it thrive? Was Israel the faithful son? They obeyed the Lord. They said, okay, Lord, we're out of Egypt. We're going to do whatever you say. We're going to keep your law. We're going to be good kids. But that's the opposite of what Israel does. They're the unfaithful son. So much so that they're exiled from the land, from the temple, from God's presence. And so this relationship, this exodus didn't work. And so there's this longing for a new exodus, a, a, a true lasting salvation. And Matthew says, Jesus is here and he's the true Israel. He's going to bring about the exodus that's going to last, that's going to work. And in fact, this is fascinating. We're going to see this in the coming weeks. But what Matthew does, I think is that he takes these first five chapters and he, he, it's a, uh, Jesus' experience is a recapitula recapitulation or a retelling of the history of Israel. So that, think about this. This is fascinating. We're going to see this. Uh, Pastor Will, when he looks at Matthew chapter 4, is going to see this also. But think about Matthew 2, where we are now. There's this exodus. Out of Egypt I called my son. And what happens after Israel, think Old Testament, they're called out, they're delivered out of Egypt, they get to the Red Sea and they can't cross, right? But what do they do? The Lord parts it and they go through the water. Well, guess what's going to happen in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus comes out of the Exodus. He's going to be baptized. He's going to go through the water in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 4, So what happens to Israel after they go through the Red Sea. They go to the wilderness. For how, how long? 40 years. Temptations in the wilderness. Guess what Jesus is going to do in Matthew chapter 4? He's going to go to the wilderness. How long? Not 40 years, but 40 days. He's going to be tempted in the wilderness. But whereas Israel failed to obey, guess what Jesus is going to do? He's going to be faithful. He's going to keep the law. He's going to do what Israel couldn't do. And then 
after the, the, the wilderness wanderings, they go in and they're given the law again on top of Mount Sinai. And guess what Jesus is going to do after the wilderness temptation? He's going to go up on a mount, chapter 5 of Matthew. He's going to say, hey, here is the new law. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so I think Matthew is, is intentionally saying Jesus is the one that the entire Old Testament was leading to. He's the true Israel. He's the true Moses. He's the true sacrificial lamb. He's the true temple, the true David. All these themes are, are being fulfilled in Jesus. And think about Matthew writing to the Jews saying, Jesus is the one. You, you think you're Jewish. Well, you're not Jewish until you understand Jesus is the fulfillment of all of your history. He wants them to identify Jesus as the fulfillment of all that came before. So, so we recognize Jesus does not drop on the scene context-less. There's a context here, and it's all that came before. And so this is how I think Matthew understands the fulfillment language. And so we ought to be encouraged here by, by the covenant-keeping love of the Lord because the Lord sustained Israel. So Hosea, if you go back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you know what it says in Hosea 11, chapter 2? It says, The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. And yet the Lord here hasn't abandoned Israel. His covenant-keeping love has sustained them and sustained this relationship. And so even in the midst of exile, Matthew connects the life of Jesus to Hosea 11 because salvation and deliverance has finally come in the person and work of Christ. And before we look at the next section, just one more point that I can't, I can't pass here is that we just see the nature of worldly kingdoms. We, we see Herod versus God. I mean, Herod's evil intentions are a controlling factor in this chapter. All the way from the beginning, he hears there's a new king and he says, I gotta eliminate him. And so Herod is this, this archetypal anti-hero. And so Jesus is being contrasted with Herod. And so Jesus is going to bring life and freedom. And Herod has, has death and bondage and slavery. Jesus is going to give him of himself completely, sacrificially, humbly, whereas Herod only cares about himself and his own kingdom. And so here we have these two kingdoms. As one commentator put it, when darkness faces light, it cannot react any other way than rejection and persecution. And so Herod, in this sense, represents the way of the world, the kingdom of the world, the prince of the power of the air. And I think we just have to step back and say, this is an unavoidable, unavoidable pattern in our world. There are two kingdoms. There are two great world, two kingdoms at war in this world. And with that, there are two allegiances. There are two ways to live. There's the world and there's God's kingdom. And that's, that has always been the pattern, and that will always be the pattern. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. That's going to be the pattern. The world and God's kingdom will never operate in accord, ever. That's the nature of worldly kingdoms. And it's not just Herod. It's not just, uh, think of whoever you want. It's, it's the prince of the power of the air. It's Satan himself who is always going to oppose God's kingdom. And he's always going to be at work in whatever ways he can. And so we'll say more about this in a minute. But this is the pattern, the nature of worldly kingdoms. We see that in Herod. But after this journey from Bethlehem to Egypt, Matthew then turns our attention back to Bethlehem. Verses 16 through 18. And we see that the massacre in Bethlehem. So look there, verses 16 through 18. So we have Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked or deceived or duped, he'd been played the fool by the wise men. 
And we know Herod's character, that this is not going to go well with Herod to, to, be the, to be made a laughingstock by the wise men. Because remember, he had told the wise men, go visit the king and come back and tell me where he is because so I can worship him. Well, the wise men aren't coming back. It's a short journey. It's probably been a day, two days, three days. And Herod's like, wait a minute, they're not coming back. And so he becomes furious, angry, livid. And so what does the livid, angry Herod do? He sins and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region. So all the male kids, two years or older, Herod sends his soldiers and they murder all of the young boys. Two years or older. I mean, that's evil. This is the king who says, I'm not going to have this child rival me, so I'm going to eliminate. I can't get the one, so I'm just going to take them all out. And so he sends his soldiers and he slaughters. The boy. This is selective infanticide. And just imagine, just imagine the population. So at this point, Bethlehem has a small population. The highest is 1,000 people, but most people say it's probably 300, 400 people. So it's a small town, which would mean that there's a couple dozen boys, two or older, maybe, maybe only a dozen. But these boys are targeted and eliminated by this evil king. And, and I think we should, should stop and feel the pain. I mean, think about it. I don't know if any of you have, have children, boys, two years or on, under. I mean, think about that. No warning. No, no, no angelic vision to all the parents that Joseph gets a warning, but no one else does. And so they lose their... Think about your grandkids, your great-grandkids. They're They're gone. I mean, this, this is severe, significant suffering. And this is what Herod does. This, this is the evil Herod at work. But notice what, what Matthew says in verse 17. He said, then was fulfilled. Notice that's a different language. It's not this was to fulfilled, but then was fulfilled. Not that God is passive, but, but, but Matthew seems to be lessening the blow or trying to. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. And so again, this is fulfillment language, Jeremiah 31. And that's the quote. So verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so what does Matthew mean here? How does this fulfillment? Because what he does is he seems to say, okay, here's the mothers in Bethlehem who've just lost their, boy, their young boys from Herod. He's comparing them to the voice in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children. Well, Jeremiah 31, this is the exile. And, and so Rachel, here, here's the, what, what, what happened here. Rachel, she's not alive during the exile as Jeremiah is writing, but Jeremiah in writing in chapter 31, he's saying that as the exiles are being led away from Jerusalem, they're being led away from the city and they're going into Babylon or, or Assyria, wherever they're going, Rachel, as the mother of Israel, is weeping for they are no more because as, as the Israelites are being exiled, there is severe weeping and loss because Israel, as they know it, is, is no more. It's going into exile. It's disobedience being punished. And so Matthew seems to be saying, comparing these two, and there, there's significant difference. But I think one similarity to highlight is the, the, the real inconsolable sorrow of these mothers. I mean, if nothing else to say, 
mothers in Bethlehem, as you're weeping, you know this is not a new experience for God's people. God's people have always had sorrow and suffering and weeping. But what's fascinating is Matthew's point, I don't think is the weeping, but instead the Jeremiah 31 passage, if you read Jeremiah chapter 31, the entire chapter is a positive chapter except for the verse that's quoted. And so what Jeremiah 31 is about is saying, hey, there's a voice weeping, but take heart. Because in fact, if you can, you can write this down, Jeremiah 31, the very next verse, verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Keep your, ears from te- keep your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your works, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. And so in the midst of sorrow, Jeremiah is saying the sorrow is going to be temporary. And I think Matthew is saying the same thing. Yes, this is real sorrow, but it's temporary. Do you know why? Because the one who escaped the slaughter is actually going to bring an end to exile. That's why he wants the the readers to recognize Jesus is a fulfillment because the weeping in Ramah was for exile. And now that Jesus is on the scene, the tears are to be no more because exile is going to be over because the one who's come to deliver the people is here in the person of Jesus. And in fact, the end of Jeremiah 31 is one of the most popular new covenant promises. And so Jeremiah 31 is a, a positive Chapter And so Jeremiah 31, 15 occurs in a setting of hope. Despite the tears, God says, the exiles will return. And now Matthew, referring to Jeremiah 31, 15, likewise says, despite the tears of the Bethlehem mothers, there's hope because the Messiah has escaped Herod and he will reign. And so there's hope there. So I think this is how Matthew understands the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment and the end of exile. He's going to bring an end. He's going to bring God's people back to their land. And so I think we see here, we see the nature of the Lord's presence with his people. I mean, even in the darkest times, whether it's exile, whether it's in slavery in Egypt, whether it's in sorrow in Bethlehem, Even in the darkest times, the Lord is with his people. No suffering, no weeping, no sorrow goes unnoticed by the Lord. I mean, maybe you just need to hear that. Maybe maybe you feel really sorrowful and burdened and alone. You need to hear the the Lord is with you in your suffering, in your sorrow. He's no stranger to it. I mean, Exodus 4, it's a great passage where the cry of the Israelites reached the ear of the Lord and he delivered them, he acted. I mean, let's not forget the Father sent his only begotten Son. He's no stranger to loss and suffering. And so be encouraged, believer. Suffering, death, sorrow doesn't move you further away from the Lord. It doesn't. He's there. Suffering has always been part of the experience of God's people in this world, but so has the nearness of the Lord. You're going to go through sorrow and suffering. It's a fallen order. You're going to go through it, but you don't go through it alone. You have the Lord. And then the last application point just here, something to recognize, is not the nature of God on display here, but I think we see satanic activity in the ac- actions of Herod. I mean, if you, if you go all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 3, there's tension between Eve and the serpent, right? But, but who is the serpent going to go after specifically in Genesis chapter 3? It's not the woman, it's what? the seed of the woman. So that's who the serpent's going to go after. And so Herod's actions here 
in going after these children is satanic at its core. It is satanic to want to eliminate, kill human life, specifically children. I mean, think about the creation ordinance. Be fruitful and multiply, which means have children. And Satan says, I'm going I'm to reverse that process. I'm going to take children away. I'm going to kill the children. It is satanic. And so whenever you have a king or a, a dictator, a government, a ruling power who's set on killing, murdering children, you have satanic activity. And I want to be careful not to draw too many, uh, a direct correlation between what we're experiencing in our nation since 1973 and onward. I don't want to draw an exact comparison, but we do have satanic activity at work in our nation. Because we have a government, we have systems that are enabling and promoting and making appealing the murder of children. And it's satanic. There's no way around it. No matter what words you use, it is satanic. And so we, as citizens in a nation where we we can use our voice and we can work towards change, we should do that. But we recognize that the Lord always opposes it no matter what. And, and the only hope is the Lord coming again. And so that's our hope. But we oppose satanic activity as we see it. And we, we fight. And we wage war. Spiritual warfare. We, we pray for this. I think we see that at work in Herod. And then finally, let's look. That leads us to our last point there. The return to Nazareth, verses 19 through 23. And so we shift from this this massacre in Bethlehem and now we go back to Joseph and the family. Verse 19, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. So we have another dream to Joseph in Egypt. So do do you notice the angel of the Lord is not not prohibited by by borders? No wall is gonna keep him out. He goes to Egypt because Joseph's gotta get word. So he says, Joseph, come back. Those who sought the child's life are dead. In fact, Herod died probably not long after his edict to kill the, the, the children of Israel. And so he dies not long after that. So, so he's dead. And so the word goes to, to Joseph, come back to Israel. And, and again, verse 21, don't, don't miss Joseph. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So he makes the journey back. And we assume he's going to go back to Bethlehem, where they came from. We don't know exactly where, but as he gets back, verse 22 He's going to the land of Israel. He hears that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father. He's afraid to go there. And so when Herod dies, he has three sons who then, who then rule the different areas of Herod's kingdom. And so Archelaus was the one who was most like his father, the most evil, the most bent on, on, on power. And so Joseph, this isn't a dream, but Joseph gets word, wait a minute, you sure you want to go back there? Archelaus is ruling. And so then he's warned in a dream, don't go back there, go to Galilee. To a town of Galilee, verse 23, he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And so Nazareth, they go back to Nazareth. This was actually where Joseph and Mary lived before the birth. So, so there's a natural place for them to go back. But Matthew wants us to know that they go back to Nazareth so that Jesus will be known as Jesus of Nazareth. Do you, do you remember that? Throughout the gospel, he's not Jesus the Bethlehem, Bethlehemite, He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew says there's a reason for that, and that was 
so that what was spoken by the prophets there, verse 23, might be fulfilled. That's that word again, fulfilled. And this, like the others, in fact, even more than the others, we, I don't know what to do with this because if you look at your Bible, there's not a footnote on that last part that you'd be called a Nazarene because nowhere in the Old Testament does someone say the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. No prophet says that. But Matthew says, this happens so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. So, so how do we make sense of that? Matthew's not wrong. We trust this is an inspired word that's given to us. Matthew is writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he doesn't make a mistake. So, so how do we figure out, how do we understand what he means? Well, some people say, well, well this is the, the, the word Nazareth is, is similar to the Hebrew word for, the, for the, the literal word branch. And so the prophet Isaiah 11 says, there's gonna be a branch, a shoot from Jesse. And so people say, well, that's the fulfillment. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Or some say, well, he's, they're talking about Samson, who's the Nazarite, remember? And they say, well, it's a Nazarite, Nazarene. Maybe it's close, which it's not really that close. not really make much sense. So, so, so people try and figure out, well, how, how does this work? And the, most, most, the way that I've made sense of it, and I'm okay with this, is that what Matthew's doing, if you notice, the, the word there in verse 23 was spoken by the prophets. That's plural, and that's the only time he does prophets plural. So before he says Jeremiah, or he says the prophet earlier, and he talks about Isaiah or, or Hosea. So here he says the prophets plural might be fulfilled. And so I think what Matthew's doing is he's saying there's a pattern where the prophets portray the coming of the promised one, the Messiah, and the Messiah is going to be despised and rejected. I, th- I think that's the pattern that he's saying is fulfilled in Jesus being from Nazareth. And I think that because of what we know about Nazareth in the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, do you remember in John chapter 1 when, when Jesus is calling his first disciples and, and Nathaniel, his brother, comes and says, Hey, let me, let me tell you about the Messiah. We found him. He's from Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say in John chapter 1? Well, can anything good come from Nazareth? What does that mean? It's because Nazareth is a, a, a podunk town. He, he's a hick from the stick if he's from Nazareth, is what one commentator said. And so Nazareth, if you're the Messiah, the promised one, you're not going to be from Nazareth. And so Matthew is saying he is from Nazareth because that's how God works. I mean, later in John chapter 7, people would say, well, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. So, so Nazareth is not the likely birthplace of the Messiah. And I think what Matthew is saying from the get-go, yes, he's from Nazareth and there's a reason. It's because he is going to be despised and rejected. I mean, I thought specifically of Isaiah chapter 53, there, there's nothing about him that made him appealing to the eyes. He was, people turned their heads from him. Right? That's one of the, the prophets that maybe Matthew is referring to. But I think we see here in, in, in Jesus coming from Nazareth that that. that the kingdom of God, the, the savior of God, the operations of God, it's, it's contrary to what we expect. It's contrary to the world. It's a different kingdom and it's paradoxical. So that salvation and deliverance and fulfillment comes through a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth, not from Jerusalem. And so, so this is the kingdom of God at work. And so this is the same person from Nazareth who would, who would stand on a mountain in chapter five and say, hey, here's what the kingdom's like. You wanna be, you wanna be part of this kingdom? Here's the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are meek, who are merciful, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted. It's a contrary kingdom. It's countercultural. It's because it comes through this humble one child who's made his way to Nazareth and is going to stay there until he comes out in his official 
capacity in chapter 3, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And so this, we close Matthew chapter 2, and we see kind of this final call of Matthew 2. Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, came to save his people from their sins, and following him demands allegiance. And so just as we close, how, how do we respond? What, what, what do our hearts need to do? What do our minds need to think in, in light of this? And, and, and I, a few points just to, just to spout out, which I hope as you've been listening, maybe there's been other things that you've thought, and, and that's, that's something I need to do or a way that I can respond. But, but I think we just see big picture. We see God's plan to save his people was under attack from the beginning. I mean, Jesus was born and, and, and there's a bounty on his head. Right, from the get-go. And so we see God's plan to save his people is always under attack, but also was secure and safe from the beginning because the Lord will not let anything happen to his anointed. He intervenes supernaturally, sovereignly in these events to preserve and protect the Messiah. And he does the same for us in our lives. Nothing comes to us but what God enables or allows or permits. God's sovereignty does not lead to our suffering unnecessarily. And so what we can do is, is simply we can rest in the salvation that's come through this true king. Because from chapter two on, the life of Jesus is sustained. There are many further attacks on this one. And his life will end at the end, but it's because he freely gives it for the sake of his people. And so we can rest. One response is for our hearts to rest in the salvation that that has been won through this king. I think what what I mentioned earlier, we we ought to just let it settle on us that God's people and God's kingdom are incompatible with the people and kingdom of this world. They are incompatible. So don't try and make friends. We can't. We we resist the world in all the right ways, the, the things of this world, the pleasures of the world, the systems of this world, the powers of this world, the, the appeal of the world, the priorities of the world. This is not our home. Herod's not our king. So we need to stop living like it. I need to stop living like it. We rejoice in what we have, which is a kingdom that can never be shaken. That's eternal. We have new life. We have a living hope. We have acceptance with God, the Father. We have belonging. We have a loving relationship with the one who created us to know us. We have relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Perfect communion. And, and so much more. So we reject the world, but we rejoice in what we have. And, and, and as we do this, this becomes less and less appealing. And so we rejoice in what we have. And so as we leave Matthew chapter 2, we, we leave knowing we follow the king and we live in this world as his people. And so let us aim to be faithful, obedient, humble followers of our king who love our enemies. Let, let's pray.